I want to offer a series of observations today. Uh, we, are, we talked about John chapter 13 last week, we're talking about it this week, and we will talk about it next week, and then we'll move to something else. But as we marinate in this text over a few weeks, I hope that it, it helps us to spend time in the same space and just keep turning the kaleidoscope and seeing different things in the text that are there for us. And my hope today, as I make a couple of observations to you, will lead us up to a moment around the table together as a community. I, I want to keep our attention focused on John 13, but specifically that John 13 is a strange story. Last week, I talked about how the text almost felt like a complete redefinition of how we understand leadership, that Jesus comes to us as a servant, and he shows us how to lead. He shows us how to be. He shows us how to exist in the world. And no matter what our theology of the incarnation is, how is God both God and human? And no matter what our expectation of God is, this story sort of defies our understanding. Just Jesus kneeling down, washing feet is not the image that any of us are used to. And at some level, no matter how often you look at this story, it still feels strange. The fifth century Syrian bishop, Severian of Gabala, who I know that you were all reading at breakfast, um, the, the homilies of the church fathers and the, and the, the ancient saints are, are just stunning sometimes. And so I want to share this one with you because as he was reflecting and teaching on this scene in John 13, this is how he put it. He who is clothed in light as in a robe was clad in a cloak. He who wraps the heavens in clouds wrapped round himself a towel. He who pours the water into rivers and pools tipped some water into a basin. And he before whom every knee bends in heaven and on earth and under the earth knelt to wash the feet of his disciples. I mean, Severian manages to, to really grasp just how strange this scene is, that the creator of the world is washing his disciples' feet. What is God up to here? This unexpected story. What is God up to in unexpected things? And there's a part of me wonders if maybe that question, what is God up to in this unexpected moment, is actually the sort of question that should be part of our regular devotional life. Things have not gone as I expected. What is God up to here? Is God up to something when things aren't going as we expected? There's a level wherein the story of John chapter 13 cuts against the grain of those of us who like to keep God in a box. Well, if you, if you like your God predictable, if you like your God playing within the rules that we think God should play with, Jesus probably isn't the right God for you. Hang around to the end of the sermon. I hope I can convince you otherwise. But, but if you want predictability, I'm not sure Jesus is right particularly if your predictability is built around how you think the world should work. I know how I would like things to be. I know how I would be most comfortable if life was. And so often Jesus is pushing against that. He who wraps the heavens in clouds wraps round himself a towel. I mean, this image will keep us theologically humble and generous. And this whole story of Jesus doing all this is happening in such a complex sequence of moments. I mean, this is happening while 
Jesus' betrayer is present. It's not even just his inner circle that's there. It's all of his disciples, one of whom has sold him out. But here's my first observation. Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Says Peter. Perhaps on the behalf of all of us. <laughs> this is a little awkward, Jesus. I'm not sure I'm okay with how things are going right now. But I wonder if you've paused to ask the question, why does Peter object? If it might be worth us spending some time meditating on that. Why is it that Peter objects? The story seems to suggest that Peter isn't the first person that Jesus comes to. So for some reason, Peter is objecting now. If Peter has watched Jesus wash other disciples' feet and now is objecting as he arrives at his feet, Peter's problem is not about Jesus. Peter's problem is not, you shouldn't be doing this, Jesus. Peter's problem seems to be, I don't want you to do this to me, Jesus. Can you see how that's sort of hidden in the text there? It's not, it's not Peter going, no, 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 this is not the work for you, Jesus. We have different work for you. Something about this story is causing Peter to object about his involvement in it. What I want to invite you to do is ponder that question for the next week. The series of observations I said this sermon would be observations with homework. <laughs> and the homework is I'd love you to ponder the question, what is Peter objecting to? Why is Peter objecting? And I think, I think we'll find it's appropriate to come back to that question on the Sunday that we partner with so many of our missions uh, partnerships. And so, I, so just hold on to that idea. Maybe if you're a note taker, I know you don't have a journal, but if, you, if you're a note taker, write it down somewhere. Why does Peter object to this? Perhaps let me frame it like this. Does Peter object to what Jesus is wanting to do to him? Is that why Peter objects? Jesus, I don't want you to do this to me. Or is it that Peter is objecting to what Jesus' actions imply for him? If you do this to me, Jesus, I know what it means. So is it that he doesn't want Jesus to do it to him, or is it that he knows what it means if Jesus does it to him? When Christ behaves like this, what is it? we, like Peter, object to. So that's my trailer for next week. So hold and think about that. Second observation is, Peter, you shall never wash my feet. You shall never wash my feet. I love reading John's gospel because there just seems to be a bit of a beef between John and Peter. If Peter does something that isn't quite right, John took notes. He's like that annoying little brother, you know, where you think you've got away with it, and then somebody outs you. You know, like, who broke this? I don't know. Wasn't it you? You know, there's a scene in John's gospel, right, that is just, to me, one of the funniest scenes in the Bible, where when recording the resurrection story of Jesus, John decides it's probably an appropriate point to tell you that in a running race, he's faster than Peter. And I have spent a substantial amount of my life studying the scriptures, and I'm still not entirely sure what the purpose of John telling us that is, other than he wants all of history to know he was faster than Peter. <laughs> and here we have another situation where, I mean, and there's more than just humor going on here, please hear me well, but you see, Peter, you will never wash my feet. 
And we also, because we just read the whole gospel text, in a few moments' time, Peter's like, or wash everything. So we go from never to absolute commitment. But there's this gap between that of you will never wash my feet to what about my hands and my head also. And there's maybe again this question of what's going on here. We live in a really anxious age. I don't know if you've noticed that. That it seems that we're all anxious about something. If you live in the Western world, if you have the technology to you know, be part of, even if you were listening to this on a podcast or you're sat in this room, you live in a society and a culture that is becoming increasingly defined by our, by our anxiety. The theory of high connectivity that sort of comes from the invention of the telephone by Graham Bell right the way through to our present age, the theory is that the more connected we become as humans, the more we will become gracious, kind, understanding, and welcoming. That that high connectivity will cause growth, harmony, and a unified world. How's that working out? What we're actually beginning to realize is that highly connected humans seems to lead to higher levels of conflict. Something in our theory of if we all just knew each other better, we would all get on a lot better. Something's not working there. Something's not quite connecting. Something in our brokenness is leading to us to just be less welcoming to one another. And for sure, throughout all of history, there's certain voices calling us to a better place. But generally speaking, in this moment in history, we're not doing great with our human interactions. Our human interactions, leadership interactions, public figures are being defined so much by the anxieties that are within us. And this is causing something, and I wonder if you think about your own workplace or your own community or just what you see in the media, I wonder how much you would, you would agree with a statement like this. But this, this level of anxiety that we live with in, our, in this cultural moment is meaning that, that most of our difficult human interactions are more defined by us avoiding conflict than finding harmony and consensus. So think about, imagine you had a difficult situation coming up at work tomorrow, or a tough situation with one of your neighbors. Just, uh, and again, don't, I don't want a show of hands, this is private. <laughs> but think about your approach to that difficulty. Are you governed by, I think we can work to find a place where we're both happy, or is actually your primary concern, how do I ensure we don't have a terrible conflict? And I think what you'll notice is that something's happened in our cultural moment where not having conflict is about the best we can hope with and hope for when we encounter people that we are disagreeing with. Communications become very cheap, and as such, conflict has become very common. It's easy to type an email. It's really easy to post something on a social media site. It's so easy. There's mechanisms to just express your dislike with just a couple of taps of your finger. And it's almost like anxiety is spreading in us like a bit of a virus. Like everybody you know is afraid of something that is undoubtedly not as bad as they think it is. Just switch on the news, open up your, uh, open up your, your, your device, and, and scroll through the media, and, there's, there's, and I'm not here trying to gaslight everyone to say, oh no, things are absolutely fine. 
Not saying that at all. But our reaction to things is substantially worse than things often actually are. And what's happening is a sort of almost herd instinct happens to us in those moments, is when we all start to get nervous about something, we all start to feed into each other's anxiety and nervousness, and then we start to act reactively. And what happens is we think this and we're nervous about it, so we will now react badly to people who don't think like that. Have you ever seen this? <laughs> now, here's what happens. In this situation, when you get into a moment like this, invariably, the most anxious people are the ones that become the leaders because they're the ones that start to put out in public the anxieties that everybody else is, is sort of worrying about. But the problem is that our leaders and our thought leaders and our political leaders and our cultural leaders become the ones that shape their, their decision-making processes around their anxieties that group us into our various groups of anxieties. Think about it. Is anyone at random that you think of as an influential character, no matter where they are on the spectrum of different views, think about how so often the most well-known people are leveraging anxiety to gather their crowds. I opened up my podcast app on my computer the other day there, and I generally don't do that. I'm often listening to podcasts on phones, so you've got a smaller screen, right? When I opened up the podcast app, I realized there's all these new sort of sections that I'd never noticed before. And there's this one section right in the middle of my computer screen that was like popular podcasts. And the top five popular podcasts in Canada right now are all by very divisive, very outspoken people from all different sides of the political spectrum. None of the people in the top five were, were moderate in what they thought about things. They were all on the extremes. And each one of them is telling you they're wrong and we should be worried about them. And then you listen to the next podcast, number two podcast, is basically saying the same thing in a different direction for a different subject. So Peter actually feeds into something that all of us can recognize. That I'm in a moment right now and I don't like it. And my desire, something in me, says, I'm going to draw a line here. You will never wash my feet. Whatever I've seen them do, don't think you're treating me like them. Don't think that you're looping me into that particular group. And it's so easy for us to draw the line. It's so simple to draw the line. Think about how often in public discourse, right now, we hear this statement using different words. We cannot do this. I will never stand for that. If that happens, I will X, Y, or Z. And we're so divided as people at the moment, I don't even need to fill in the subject area that I'm talking in because there's so many of them, and I'm pretty sure everybody in this room is thinking of at least three. Three areas where we're like, I don't know how that will ever be solved because our divides are too high. Or if we're really honest, and again, no show of hands, please. If we're really honest, how many things do we hold in our own hearts that we ourselves say, I will never with those people or with that situation or there. You will never wash my feet, Peter says. I mean, this whole scene, by the way, is beset with anxiety, right? I mean, Judas is there, okay? Like, and either Judas was the most amazing actor ever or some people had picked up on the fact that Judas wasn't totally on board with Jesus. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, films on Jesus for the years have tried to figure this. Jesus, Judas is always at the back with a scowl, you know, generally looking like me. Um, 
you know, and uh, just kind of like staring in at Jesus, taking notes and robbing money, always, always doing that. But we, I mean, the, the Bible doesn't give us insight into exactly what was going on, but, but Judas is in a dark space, so there's not unity. There's political tensions going on around Jesus. The, the, the various sort of power sources in Jerusalem are, are expressing their discontent. It's also Passover, so Jerusalem's just tense anyway because the Romans are worried about all of the people gathering for a religious festival, and the disciples are hiding out in an upper room, right? So, so there's all sorts of anxiety markers in this story. But look at Jesus, which, just as a side note, great thing to do when you're anxious. Look at Jesus. What is Jesus doing in the midst of all of this? He whom before every knee bows is kneeling to wash the disciples' feet. Like Jesus is a model for us here. He's a model to us, and he's a model for us. In the midst of all the chaos, he is serving. In the midst of the anxiety, I mean, did someone forget to wash feet? It's like a pretty much an everyday requirement at a meal in those era. And has the anxiety, has the anxiety been so bad that everybody's forgotten? Or is it the political infighting that each of the disciples, well, I'm the greatest. No, you're the greatest. Well, I'm Jesus' favorite. No, I'm Jesus' favorite. And as a result, nobody can decide whose job it is. We're not told why or what's happened in this particular moment. But what we do know is that Jesus is the one who washes their feet. In doing so, Jesus becomes what rabbi and therapist Edwin Friedman calls a non-anxious presence. He's present to them. Sometimes you just got to be there. <laughs> if you've ever had a bad situation and somebody's just turned up and simply opening the door and seeing that person there made things better. Maybe not completely better, but definitely better. Presence is important. And secondly, Jesus doesn't fuel the anxiety. He resists it by bringing his health into the space. And notice that Jesus doesn't bring all the toxic leadership kind of qualities that we often think are the solution to every problem. You know, Jesus doesn't come in with his charisma. You know, he doesn't come in with a five-point plan, a three-point sermon. He doesn't come in with a ton of drive, a whole host of intelligence, a resume of successes. He brings humility, he brings servanthood, and he brings a lack of anxiety, which is remarkable because if anybody should have been anxious in that place, you would expect it to be Jesus but he serves his way into it. And as a result, brings a non-anxious presence to us. As I spent my time over the summer away, and I told you last week, and if you weren't here last week, you can engage with it on our podcast. But as I, as I sort of journeyed through into, into a moment of ordination, I found this part of this story kept speaking to me. How do I be a presence like this in the world? How do I be a pastor that is a non-anxious presence? How do we be a community that is a non-anxious community? I, I think and hope you understand what I'm saying with this. I'm not talking about our, uh, this is not a sermon about our mental health. Hear me well with that. You know, we, we talk about that at other points in our year. But I want to talk about us in terms of our cultural moment of anxiety. Is this a community where you can come and feel safe despite knowing that we don't all agree in this room. And I understand that actually is a huge goal because 
for the other days of our week, we're being divided. We're being encouraged to think differently from everybody else. We're being encouraged to find our tribe, our herd, our, our community that, that is worried about that community over there. And then we're going to come to the table where neither Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female are turned away. So this Jesus moment of kneeling and bringing this non-anxious presence, I think, I think calls those of us who lead in church, but I think it calls to us as a congregation to say, do we want to be a place like that? Imagine if this non-anxious presence of Jesus could shape and form us so that we develop something of an immunity to all of the things that would encourage us to be fearful of people different from us. And I just don't think Jesus ever calls us to live afraid. I don't think he calls us to live worried about each other. And it feels controversial to say that. It feels controversial because most of us immediately start to think, but how could that even work? What would that even look like? Because so broken is our public moment. We can't imagine living in harmony because almost everywhere else, we're encouraged to not see eye to eye. We're encouraged to be reactive. We feel it as leaders, constantly questions to us about where do we stand on this? Where do we stand on that? What's our position on this thing? What's our position on that thing? What if our answer to that was, well, we're here to serve. We're here to kneel. We're here to remember that Jesus brought a lack of anxiety not line drawing that says this is okay and that's not okay, but service in the middle of the chaos. The good news, the gospel, is Jesus. And where is Jesus? He's washing your feet, calming us down in the midst of the chaos. And then notice this, as we approach the table, one final observation for this morning, I'm gonna try and squeeze in. There's also a phenomenal dialogue between Jesus and Peter here. And, you know, we've said it for a long time, uh, for the last several months at Westside now, that, that we're trying to be a dialogical community, a place where your voice is valued, where your voice is listened to, where actually it's safe to be and talk, and that talk be a two-way thing. So you might be not surprised to see me spot the dialogue in this story here, but notice the dialogue. There's no accusation in Jesus' dialogue. There's no anxiety generated by Jesus' dialogue. There's just a genuine, non-anxious presence, which allows Jesus to listen, hear, and then respond in a way that draws Peter to a healthier place. Peter draws his line. Here's the line. I am never going to let this happen. And Jesus' response is, but Peter, I want you to be on this journey with me. And if you want to be on this journey, you can't draw that line, Peter. And Peter's response is, okay, I'm all in, quite literally, like, I'm going to get in the whole basin, and I want to be completely covered and washed. But notice, Peter says anxiously, no. Jesus says calmly, what about this, Peter? And Peter makes the switch. And the switch and the instantaneous nature of the switch is what fascinates me. And I think this is the word of the gospel to us this morning. Grace will never make you feel guilty. Peter draws his line says, never, Jesus. And quite literally, one sentence later has completely changed his position. And that's okay. All of the things he said in the past don't stop him being welcomed into where Jesus wants him to be. Too often, I think we deliver the word of the gospel with a sting. It's like, this is the word of grace, but you better. This is the word of the grace, but don't do this or else. 
And if you've ever heard the gospel presented to you with a, a now you must, or you should, or you ought, you started to lose the gospel a little bit. If you've ever heard me preach the gospel where the invitation to Jesus makes you feel guilty, just ignore it. Because that's me, it's not the gospel. Notice, go read the gospels. Jesus never uses guilt to motivate us. Jesus never uses shame to make us change. Instead, he is the non-anxious presence who loves us into a better place. Jesus is always inviting us, always showing us a better way, and never, ever stopping us from getting there because of our guilt, and never, ever using our guilt and shame to motivate us to make that move. That's why I love inviting us to the table. Because Jesus leaves us with this meal that is for everyone, I think to remind us of his non-anxious presence, to remind us of the call to come to him, be fed by him, and don't hold yourself away from that. There's this, uh, we use this invitation regularly at Westside when we serve communion to you. Despite us using this quite regularly, most times that we serve communion, somebody will have a conversation with me. And it's absolutely okay that you've had this conversation with me if you have. But over my seven years here, and my experience has been the same in other churches, there's invariably at least one person in any room that takes communion who excludes themselves. But the reason they exclude themselves is because I'm just not sure I should go today. That thing that's going on, I'm not sure I would be, would be right for me to be at the table. What happens is we draw ourselves away from Jesus. We put our line down because we've started to listen to a gospel that makes you feel guilty. One of the reasons we say this every week, but I want to make it explicitly clear, is we say it when we call us to the communion table, is that this beautiful Celtic invitation is designed to take down all the barriers that we would construct to stop us from coming to the table. This is the table of the Lord, not of the church, but of the Lord. It's made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed. Come, because it is the Lord who invites you. It is his will that those who want him should meet him here. And then as Kristen comes to lead us in this part of communion, I want to invite us just to, to, to lean into an affirmation of our faith. And this moment where Jesus is asked at one point, what is the most important commandments? What should I do? Jesus responds like this, and I invite you to do this responsively with me as a confession of what we believe. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is the first and the great commandment. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. 